Hi, and welcome to the Nook Podcast, hosted by the Nook Online, a base camp for women on the rise. I'm Noah. And I'm Kim. Nook for short. The Nook is a membership-based community for women around the world to connect, uplift, educate, and empower one another. It's a place for us to pause and catch our breath. Each week on this podcast, we'll be having meaningful discussions with some incredible experts within our community on multifaceted subjects ranging from leadership and entrepreneurship to wellness and relationships. Our hope is that these conversations will spark some fire in your soul, help you live on purpose, live wholeheartedly, and ultimately be in the driver's seat of your life. Our guest today is one of the Nook Council members, Leah Hechtman. Leah has been in private practice for over 20 years in fertility, pregnancy, and reproductive health care for men and women. She's also completing her PhD through the School of Women's and Children's Health. Leah is the director of the Natural Health and Fertility Center in Sydney, Australia, where she maintains her clinical practice. She's an author with a focus on gynecology, fertility, and infertility. We hope you enjoy this podcast today. If you enjoy this podcast today, please remember to share, rate, and review it, and head to thenookonline.com to join our community. All right. Well, this m- morning, we are recording from Australia, and we've got the lovely Leia on our podcast. And we're so excited to chat with you, Leia. Thanks for agreeing to chat with us. Looking forward to it, too. Thank you both. Welcome. So one question we like to kick off um, our podcast, Leia, is tell us your story. How did you get to where you are today professionally? Professionally. Because tell us your story could be big. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So I started studying naturopathy when I was 17 um, and then I finished that and then I did a Bachelor of Health Science and then I did a Master's in Reproductive Medicine and Genetics and then started a PhD, which is still going because I had two kids in the middle um, and so, yeah, so I've just done lots of different training and studying along the way and been privileged to have lots of amazing teachers and supervisors and mentors and, um, yeah, just been really grateful for all the different steps along the way. And so in a nutshell, what would you say your area of uh, profession is today? Oh, okay. Sorry. So predominantly for I work those with... who don't know you. No, 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 that's fine. Predominantly, I work with people in the fertility world. So helping people make babies, um, helping them with their pregnancy and reproductive disorders. Um, But I'm very heavily involved in research and clinical work in the idea of conception for couples. Great. Um, Tell us, do you have a specific area of expertise or I guess maybe even tell us a little more about your PhD? Yeah. So the PhD started because there's a test um, worldwide called an AMH test and it came out how many years ago now? It was used in a clinical context quite significantly, probably about eight or nine years ago. And I remember having a woman and I'll never forget her. I remember her coming in to see me and she was a nurse and she'd been given an AMH level, which was undetectable. And she sat there crying and saying to me, does this mean it's the end of the line? And so this is, you know, eight years ago before donor cycles were quite um, available and accessible. And I remember sitting with her going, I don't know how to help you. So for me, in a clinical context, not being able to help someone, I think is devastating because I always want to be able to know that there's another door or another answer. And so I went and tested my own AMH and it came back at a really low level. And I was 33 or something at the time. And I went into an entire panic about it. And I went, oh my God, what does this mean? And I wasn't ready to have kids. 
Um, I knew it was coming in the next couple of years, but I didn't want it that, that early. And I, um, I decided that there had to be something wrong with the test. So about 12 months later, I, of course, conceived my son, first go, no problems, no question. And I went, there's something wrong with this test. There were women around the world making decisions, fertility decisions and life decisions, you know, whether or not they're going to do donor cycles at 35 years of age based on this test. And it's a massive thing for people to be doing. So I went, right, I need to do some more study on it. So I started the PhD looking at AMH and it's now evolved into looking at um, a number of ovarian biomarkers so that we can basically test women and give them knowledge that's accurate and that's helpful rather than that's inflammatory. And, and now we know there are so many problems with the AMH result and I can give you, you know, 50 reasons as to why mine would have been low. And I just wish that I could see that lady again. But eight years down the track, she's probably closed that journey. Mm. So it's, um, that's probably the motivator of where I went. And I guess for me in a clinical context, it's always about if someone has a choice and they want to be able to do something, I want to find a way to help them do it. So it doesn't mean that I can always help them conceive with their own eggs or conceive with their partner's sperm if they have a partner, but it does mean that I'll work out a way whether or not it's in the country they live or somewhere else around the world, but I'll work out a way to help them have the dream of having a family. So that, that's me. That's, I guess, the why. So um, full disclosure, I also worked with Leia personally and um, Leia helped me through my own fertility journey um, of a couple different rounds of um, treatments and then finally two rounds of IVF um, and then postnatal depression and all of the other wonderful um, hormonal explosions that happened to me after having a baby. But is there a particular area of expertise? I mean, I know fertility, there's so many aspects to an infertility uh, journey. And so is there a particular area of expertise that you now specialize or is it really in helping women figure out what their choices are and what their options are and then supporting them no matter what those are hmm. i think fertility in itself is such a niche area that when you get really subspecific to it it kind of limits who you can see so i think my main interest is endometriosis that's the one that i just absolutely I'm completely fascinated by it, and apparently I'm quite good at treating it. So we'll see. But um, I'm really fascinated by it. It's just one of those, you know how there are areas in your life where you're just a sponge naturally to information, there's no effort? It, it, that's just the one for me. Um, but I, I see all sorts of people on their fertility journey, be it just wanting to be healthy, um, to conceive. Certainly, you know, the cohorts that I'm looking at in my PhD are PCOS women and premature ovarian failure women. And so I'm, I'm really fascinated by them. But there's something about endometriosis for me. It's just... I, yeah, I think there's just so much trauma and so much suffering and so much that can be done. And so that's probably a main motivator for me. Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, I know this is like asking how long is a piece of string, but do you oh, think there are reasons why um, women are being diagnosed more and more with things like PCOS and endometriosis today than previously? Well, it's twofold so there's the women communicating things more and having a voice and being able to explain that oh actually you know a period that's extremely painful that you can't get out of bed that's not normal so that you know I think women are more educated they're smarter they know how to research things themselves I think that there's been a lot of um, government initiative from the medical community for research into these areas but I also do think that the environment has a big role so all the environmental pollutants the toxins the nutritional deficiencies the crazy stressful lives that people live but 
Um, you know, I, I presented at a conference in October last year and the research around the impact of fertility from environmental pollutants and heavy metals is nothing short of alarming. Um, it makes me very nervous about our children and what is going to happen to them, let alone our grandchildren. But, you know, we're in a situation where if we're not careful, just men are going to become infertile in the next 50 years. You know, the rates of sperm decline and things like that. So I think the environment's probably the biggest factor. Mm. It's a tricky one, though. Yeah, that is tricky. With yeah. that being the case, are there... Are there things that you instruct people to do or you recommend in terms of their lifestyle to at least have some control around their own bodies or their environment? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, not to be alarmist, I think my caveat is to just remember that, you know, the Darwinian theory that we will adapt. But what I always say is what are we adapting to? So, yes, we will adapt and our bodies or science will help us navigate a way to, you know, retain our fertility. But you know, the empowerment piece of women, you know, eating an organic whole food diet, of um, reducing their exposure to environmental toxins, be it in personal care products or cleaning products or EMF and radiation around them or, you know, exercising and de-stressing and having enough nature time. I mean, all of these things make the world of difference and they're things that you can do yourself and can empower yourself quite quickly. So there's, they're probably the foundation of how I sort of guide people out of that. And you make enormous differences just by switching those things. Mm -hmm. And then on the same note, uh, are there any major scientific breakthroughs that are you, uh, really uh, promising in your eyes? In which, as in developments medically? Is that yeah. What you're sort of yeah. yeah. Phenomenal developments. Um, I mean, look, we're in a situation where a woman can present to me at 42 years of age and I've got enough support around medically to offer her options. And if we can't use her eggs, she can have a donor cycle. Mm -hmm. So medicine has come so far that the door doesn't close for anyone. Most countries at 52 years of age is when they'll close it. That's, that's huge. I mean, you think about in the last 10 years when so many women were just told you have to adopt or you have to foster, she can now conceive a child. If it's with her eggs, fantastic. And if it's not, then it's not. Um, you know, science is definitely doing an enormous amount around potential changes to the egg quality. You know, they're doing things like mitochondrial transplants and um, various uh, genetic testing and genetic transformations to the embryos itself and giving couples a chance to have their own kids. So we're in an exciting time medically because there's so much available to us. So I think th there's just lots of opportunities I think is good. Amazing. That's good. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the women or couples that you, that are your patients? Any not names. <laughs> Not names. <laughs> That's okay. No, I would never do that. Some never interesting that. stories, some sharing some examples of yeah. people who come to I see all sorts of types of people. The I guess some of the most inspiring scenarios is when I see couples that have gone through their fertility journey and then they're told it's unexplained, you've done 15 IVF cycles, you've been trying for five years and we've got no answers for you. And then when I get to work with them, they're pregnant in four months. You know, and there's... It's one of those situations where I like to think that it means that if we go back to holistic medicine, if we go back to listening to the body, addressing deficiencies, working out what the body needs, it knows what to do. And invariably it does. Um, I also think that medicine is pushing women into a fear scenario where they're told, you know, at the age of 35, you're ovarian reserve declines, you're not going to be able to conceive, um, you have to, have to, have to free some eggs, you know, that sort of headspace. And 
I don't know that that's necessarily accurate. And what I always say to women is, let's look at your genetics. You know, if your grandmother conceived at 47 years of age, she'd probably got really good genes here. So let's not use the mainstream uh, perspective. And women in their 40s can conceive all the time. And it's really based on who you are, your health and your genes. And maybe your body just needs to fix a deficiency or something as simple as that. And then it can do it. But I see that all the time as well. And I don't want to give false hope to anyone because unfortunately there are situations of women that go through menopause at 35, for example, but some of them, you can get them back, you know, you can get them cycling again. And some of them, unfortunately, they've just got really bad things. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot that we can do in that situation, but there's lots in others. So, mm -hmm. so looking at um, the host of patients you've been seeing since you were 17, um, statistically, are there trends happening where women are increasingly presenting themselves as deficient in certain things that while it's not a one size fits all, most women could um, benefit from taking XYZ in terms of um, supplements or adding to their diet or decreasing yeah. um, certain things that women are just more and more deficient in? Yeah. The main ones, there's the top five that I always talk about for everybody if they're wanting to be healthy, but I think women generally are always going to be deficient in. So it's things like B vitamins, iron, zinc, vitamin D and iodine. Pretty much everyone needs to address those. Of course, there's caveats and of course there's differences in those, but pretty much everyone does. But when you're looking at you know, mainstream society, environmental impact, damage to the mitochondria. Mitochondria are the powerhouses within our cells and the eggs are richest in mitochondria out of any other cell in the body. So if we're looking at mitochondrial health for the eggs, it's all about CoQ10, melatonin and glutathione. And CoQ10, a lot of people know about and a lot of people will take it. But if they're looking at improving the quality of their eggs, potentially extending and delaying their menopause or improving their fertility, a good dose of CoQ10 can do that because CoQ10 is concentrated in the egg. So it's, it's quite amazing what I can see in clinic um, from that and certainly melatonin, making sure you have enough sleep and produce your own melatonin um, and take it if you need to take it as well. And glutathione is something that our liver naturally produces itself and get it in a supplemental form. All brands are not equal on that one, but um, it's a substance which basically helps to regenerate the liver. And you think about what our liver is bombarded with on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, be it environmental pollutant or rubbish diet or lack of sleep, um, helping the liver to regenerate itself means it will do what it needs to do. So it just, for me, it's the top anti-aging thing for patients. You know, it's the one that gives them deep restful sleep that um, helps the mitochondria be healthy. And if the mitochondria, it means, you know, we're lengthening our telomeres, we're anti-aging, we're doing all the things we need to be doing. So. Amazing. So I gave you a few more there, sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> What's the common misconception about fertility that people come in believing or that you see out there also in general? Um, probably the most common one is that women aren't connected enough to their cycles and they're not aware of their fertile window. And they, I've had so many patients over the years and it's not from a judgment perspective, but more from an education perspective, just helping them understand the time of the cycle that they need to conceive and being aware of the hormone changes in their body. And, you know, you can empower a woman so much by helping her understand there are two phases. There's a period where you ovulate and you tailor your lifestyle, you tailor your sex life, you tailor your exercise based on what phase of the cycle. Because it's all about, well, when am I strongest and healthiest and more, most robust? And when I'm most fertile, I'll make babies. And that's what happens. 
So yeah, it's all about them understanding that window and understanding their cues internally and just being in touch with their body again. Which I think we've, as a society, really gone so far away from where we've been spending a lot of time not trying to conceive. And I think we've all, we were probably taught as young girls that stuff, but I think we all forgot. Yeah. Um, got pretty disconnected. Yeah. And look, women that are on the contraceptive field predominantly, um, which has its merits, but they're completely switched off from the hormonal fluctuations in their body. So they're not aware of what's actually happening for them. They're not aware of, oh, this is when I feel more fertile. This is when I feel more introverted because they're, they're numb. You know, their body's been tricked into believing it's already pregnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking the, I, I'm guessing, you know, most, you mostly see women or couples coming in together, but, and we're often right now included, we're talking about women, but what are the things that men can be doing or, you know, how are they part of this and part of the fertility puzzle or infertility puzzle? And what are there things that they can be doing to improve their own, you know, their sperm, their their health, which makes this a better process? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I'm, I'm a big believer that it's two people. It's, you know, 50% of the genetic material for either party. And when men aren't involved, I always get a little bit nervous because I'm sort of like, well, so this woman's trying to carry this all on her own. That's not really fair. So doing it together, I think, is a beautiful way of starting the parenting journey if they're starting or continuing it. Um, but the research around men is fairly alarming. So women are born with all their eggs, okay? So the health of your mum influences the quality of your eggs more than you, but actually your maternal grandmother influences the health of your eggs because your mum was in your grandmother and the cell that would be you was in your grandmother too. And there's all these things called tri-generational studies that looked at the impact of the maternal grandmother on the subsequent third generation. So women are a bit different and we can influence the health of the maturation process of their egg, but we can't change what the original material was. Whereas for men, um, every 72 to 76 days, they completely generate new sperm. So in one ejaculate, it'll have sperm that's a day old or 72 days old. And so after that two and a half month period, it's completely changed. So the problem is, is that if you look um, over, let's say the last 40 to 50 years, they think that we've dropped sperm counts by at least 50%. Um, the average male sperm count is somewhere in the vicinity of 40 million per mil, whereas it used to be in the hundreds. Um, it's extremely rare for me to see men having sperm counts that are greater than 60 mil per mil. You only need one sperm, yeah? But if we're declining at that sort of rapid rate and if you sort of quantify that the most powerful um, reduction in sperm has been in the last 10 years, where are we at in 2030? So, you know, and then that at the same time, science is developing a way for us not to need men and, and do it all in a lab, but let's not go there right now. Um, <laughs> that's all something else. But men have the opportunity that unless there's something higher order, so a major genetic malformation or genetic glitch or, or something like that, they can completely change their fertility in two and a half months. So they can go from producing sperm that's extremely rubbish quality and poor count to producing perfect sperm. Because if you look at a semen analysis for a guy, it's all about diet, lifestyle, environmental aspects, and nutritional deficiencies. I was um, presented two days ago and we were talking about mitochondrial health for men and women. And mitochondrial health for men, the worst thing that a man can do is smoke cigarettes. It's the biggest damaging factor. But he can stop smoking and three months later have completely changed his sperm. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, doable and totally empowering. Right. You know, and there's the biggest challenge I think for couples is that the man can have damage in his sperm and he can bring that damage to the female to her egg. 
And the problem is, is that it's all dependent on the quality of the egg. So if the egg receives this sperm with all this rubbish in the head of the sperm within the DNA, she has to go and clean it all up to try and make a baby. So she uses all of her reserves to clean up the sperm. Then she goes and cleans up herself. And then she allows fertilization to occur. And then she has to take all the energy to make implantation. And if she's given rubbish, then they're not conceiving. And the men sort of sit there and they're like, oh, I've got sperm. I don't have to do anything. You know, they've done a semen analysis, sperm are detected, but the quality of it's probably rubbish. So the more a guy really takes on that responsibility and goes, yeah, I'm going to stop drinking and stop smoking and I'm going to exercise and I'm going to eat well, he's probably done 50% of it just by doing that. Mm-hmm. They're really lucky in that regard. <laughs> Much easier than more women. Yeah. And probably benefit from some of those other um, additives that you mentioned, CoQ10, organic diet, sleep, yeah. exercise as well. Yeah, definitely. What advice, and again, this is not a one-size-fits-all, I recognise, but um, for our listeners who are um, at some point in their fertility or infertility journey, what advice would you give um, if there's three to five things that a woman can do to get back in the driver's seat and feel like she has a bit more control? Because I remember myself just feeling that lack of control and um, not being in the driver's seat whatsoever in this random lottery test that you're supposed to win. Um, what advice can you give to women who are at some point in this fertility journey? I think the most important is to give them back that confidence and that control. So number one is about them understanding what's going on and educating themselves. So having clinicians that are putting fear into them and bullying them decisions is not the scenario that you want. You don't want... Um, a couple sitting there in an absolute panic going into an IVF cycle, not that they're bad, but being pushed into an IVF cycle when they don't even understand what's going on. Educating themselves, finding the right team and feeling empowered. So that's foundation. It's making sure that they're properly investigated so that they know what they're actually dealing with. Because the IVF community around the world go, we don't really know what's going on, so we'll just put you into an IVF cycle rather than actually going, what is going on here? There, absolutely there are going to be differences between clinicians and between clinics and countries but they sort of have a bit of a formula where they kind of tick a certain number of boxes but they don't go digging there's always a reason why a couple can't conceive you just have to try and find it and if you can't find it keep going until you do because otherwise you're pushing them into treatments that invariably don't work mm-hmm. um, IVF is extremely exhausting emotionally practically financially it's put a lot of havoc on the body So I think we need to be mindful to go, it's a tool, it's a strategy, it's brilliant. And it's given, you know, parents, children that they wouldn't have, you know, had originally, but I think it's about trying to get the answers as to why it's not working. And then I think it's about empowering themselves and going, what can I do at home on my own? Can I eat better? Can I sleep better? Can I exercise? Can I have a healthier sex life? Can I um, have better emotional and mental well-being? And recognising that your fertility is a barometer of your general health. We make babies when we're optimally healthy because we want survival of the fittest. You know, if you're constantly sick, getting the flu all the time, your body's not going to want to have a baby. It's, you know, your immune system's going to reject it. And really looking at it and going, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to take care of myself, get healthy, and invariably fertility follows. What advice would you give um, friends and family of couples who are trying to conceive and who are struggling through infertility? Because I know a lot of us, we don't even know what to say or are there ways that we can be, the outside community can be more supportive? 
Mm. I think probably one of the hardest things a lot of my patients always tell me about is when people come up to them and go, why don't you have kids yet? When they don't know, you know, and you go to a family gathering and someone comes up to you and goes, you've been married for two years. Come on, you should have a baby. And they've been trying for seven and they've had failure after failure and no one knows. I think it's about being respectful and number one, not making assumptions that A, it's any of your business and B, that um, people have journeys that you may or may not know about. And then I think it's about the other lens, which is when you do know the details, just actually saying to a person and going, what can I do that you would feel good about? Because it's not, some people don't want you to harass them with text messages every day going, what's the update with the cycle? As much as you're coming from a good place, that's stressful for them. Or maybe, you know, they, they just don't know what they want, but they just want to be able to go out and have fun with you or something. It's about saying to them, I don't know what you want and you tell me what you want and I'm going to do that for you. So it's about both being respectful when you don't know the details and when you do just being a friend and being what they need because everyone's going to be different. And I think the last is just don't underestimate how tragic some of the situations are. You know, some people will go through horrible losses and they, they often feel very excluded and they feel alienated and they feel very um, rejected as though there's something wrong with them. So being just turning up and going, I don't know the answers, I don't know the words, what can I do? That's incredible advice. I think um, as we wrap up a, a closing question, um, from a health perspective and a wellness perspective, um, what, what are some things women can do to really be in the driver's seat of their own health? Simple changes that women can make to um, improving or just owning their health and well-being. I think first it comes down to owning your hormones. I know that sounds weird, but we've been silenced for a long time. You know, discussion around your menstrual cycle, discussion around your hormonal changes has always been fairly taboo. Um, so really empowering yourself and knowing what your body's doing at, at any given moment, um, listening to your body. Our women are so in tune with their body. They, When something doesn't feel right, go check it out if you're nervous. Don't wait until it gets more concerning. Don't wait until, you know, you get to the point where you really need strong intervention. It's really listening to your body. Women have that innate knowledge. And, you know, if you look at things through um, a theosophical lens, the woman is the one that is the barometer of the relationship. She's the barometer of the home. She's the one that sets up the energy of her family. She's the one that moderates it and, and regulates it. So if she's off, make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you, you reach out to friends. Make sure you have your own time. You go away for a couple of days on your own or with a girlfriend or whatever it is that you need because it's the women that hold the energy of how we help our families, which means how we help society. And we can do so much more from you know, the constructs of our home rather than trying to go bigger scale sometimes. You know, you've got a happy home and happy kids and happy partner and everything. You can make enormous difference just from there. So I think it's really about women coming back to owning you know, it sounds a little bit out there, but, you know, just the energy of the feminine and, and owning that we do have so much that we can make so much influence from. So, I think that's wonderful advice. And I think that idea of starting with yourself and focusing on making yourself the happiest, the strongest, um, the best version of yourself has such an incredible effect on everyone around you, your family, your team, but I think we all really need to stop and give ourselves permission to focus on ourselves. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank <laughs> you, Leia. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you choosing to spend your time with us. 
For more inspiration, uplifting conversations, and connections with like-minded, driven, and determined women around the world, head over to our website, thenookonline.com, and become a member. Our Nook podcast listeners can take advantage of our founding membership special and get 50% off an annual membership by using the code NOOKPODCAST50. And if you liked and enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and share. Thanks so much.